A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi there, so this is Stop and Search on Scrooge's Pips Distraction PC Network. And if you didn't know by now, we're brought to you by Acast and it's in association with Leap UK. So let's get going. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Thank you so much again for joining us. So this is going to be another two-parter because the guests, well, they don't hold back and the conversation just flows. The audience questions are going to be in part two, so make sure you come back for them because they're always fascinating. Thank you so much, Tottenham Court Road Waterstones, for hosting this once more. And all introductions to the guests are going to be done live on the night, so you'll hear them in a moment. I'm just going to do quick social media shout-outs. So please, if you can, follow us on UK Leap on Twitter at UK Leap on Instagram, UKLeap.org on Facebook, and our website is UKLeap.org. So, with that said, let's get into the episode. And the broad theme of this, and as you can imagine, we don't stick to the script, this, we go off on a tangent. Do we have a fear of experts? Hmm? So here we go then. Let's have our first guest up. I've just introduced him a little bit. You'll know him from Lolitics. Chris Coltrane. What colour would you like? I've got literally no opinion. Go on, you've got to have some opinion. This is the, you come along to this podcast, you have an opinion. Uh, what would be the evidence-based one? So what are the options? I like red. You like red? Evidence-based red. Right, there is. I'm glad I chose red. <laughs> Right, and I think, El Wadsworth, if we can have you up here, please. Which colour would you like? And a round of applause. Uh, that one, if that's all right. And then, I don't think this man needs any introduction. If, if you're here, the chances are you know who we're going to say now. But if we can do some sort of anticipation. Let's give it up for Professor Nutt. So what I like to do now is I like to mimic the infinite monkey cage because they are my podcast heroes. So if we can get everybody to do their own introduction, because like I said, I, I'm going to mess it up if I, if I try and do it. So if we start with Elle at the, at the end there. Working, yes. Um, yep, I'm Elle Wadsworth. I am a researcher at King's College London. Well, I was. I'm now in a break because I'm moving to Canada to do my PhD on cannabis legalization. But I'm here because I am a coast with two colleagues at, King Col- at King's College London uh, of the podcast What's the Crack, which looks at the we take news articles in the media looking at drugs and addiction, and we look at the evidence base behind it and relate it to the layperson or people with a slight interest in drugs. Yep. Brilliant, Professor Nutt. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, well, I guess, um, what am I? I'm a, as I like to say, uh, uh, the name like Nut Psychiatry was what I had to go into, and uh, <laughs> I've kind of succeeded for a long time, although I've actually just given up doing clinical practice because eventually the NHS has beaten me into submission, so I've given up. So now I'm just doing research and teaching on, on drugs in the brain, and uh, on the side, trying to uh, 
trying to challenge the government to have a much more rational policy on drugs, which is why I'm going to be here tonight and encourage you all to follow me on Twitter. How many of you follow me on Twitter? That's good. That's very good. Why don't the rest of you? <laughs> oh, that's very bad. Very bad. You need to have it just to follow me. You know, I mean, it's a, it's very, it's a very efficient way of knowing what I'm doing. And I also run a, I've just come from a, a, a meeting of our charity, Drug Science. And I should have said, you should have said actually, that all the proceeds of this book support the charity Drug Science, which is, I think, the only truly independent uh, charity uh, that promotes completely scientific evidence-based approaches to drugs that there is in the world. So, and it run out of here. So buy the book, support the charity and follow me. Thank you. And that's the independent scientific committee on drugs, isn't it? That's what it was. It's now called Drug Science, just to make it simpler. Yes. And Chris Coltrane. Hello, um, I'm Chris Coltrane, MDMA, and I am a, a stand-up comedian who has... Uh, pretty much my sole qualification for being here is that I've done stand-up about doing drugs and liking it, uh, which um, hopefully you will accept me for, for those qualifications. Um, I, I, I have done stand-up about uh, MDMA and alcohol, based very much on David Nutt's work. I've tried to, to take shows up to the Edinburgh Fringe where I encourage people to think about evidence-based science, very much from a layperson's perspective. I also um, do a lot of political stand-up comedy with a particular focus on how the media are letting us down and how a lot of people who claim to be experts are not experts. So hopefully if I can offer anything today, then I can offer that. Round of applause for our guests then. That's really handy you saying that, actually, because I didn't even think to introduce the theme of tonight's podcast, which is the fear of experts. Because you may have seen during the whole Brexit debate, um, there was a certain person called Mr. Michael Gove that decided to say that we have an inherent fear of experts in this country now. And that was just a genuinely interesting comment, I think, wasn't it? Is that, do we have any fear of experts? It wasn't Gove, it wasn't... It was, I have this... <laughs> I'm in a really unfortunate position because when I don't live in London, I live in near Bristol. And um, my MP is the one who said in the Brexit, uh, the, the, just before, you know, before the Brexit uh, vote, the famous one, Rees-Mogg, he said, uh, experts are in the present day what astrologers and soothsayers were in medieval times. Uh, and uh, unfortunately got re-elected with 30,000 majority at the last election, which just shows you how outside of, actually outside of the cities, a lot of people still don't believe in experts. And uh, it's very extraordinarily disturbing. I mean, because you can kind of accept what Gove says, because Gove, Gove is just a kind of puppet that has Murdoch's hand stuck up his bum. But, um, but, but Rhys, you know, Rhys Moggs was supposed to be a, well, he was supposed to be an educated man, you know. He quotes Seneca, and he, he knows Latin and Greek, but he clearly doesn't understand anything about the present day. I guess he's kind of resurrected some... I don't know what drug it was that got him out of the grave, but anyway, it's a, it's a damn powerful stuff and we should all have it. And it is strange, isn't it? Because I kind of get what he meant in a, in a weird kind of way that it was to a certain degree that we've all been forced fed information throughout the years and some of it we choose to discard, some of it we choose to attain based on our own prejudice. Would you say, Chris, that he was misunderstood? Could we say that? To a certain extent, I think that uh, he is a very clever man and he knew exactly what he was doing when he said those words. This is not uh, uh, by, by chance that he said this phrase. Having said that, I think that the way that we use the word expert, which is obviously the correct way, is not necessarily the way that a lot of people use the word expert anymore. I think a lot of people, uh, especially people who have been let down by the world by society might see experts as elite and out of touch in the way that, for example, experts uh, did not see the 2008 financial crash coming. Experts uh, told people that actually austerity is necessary and your public services must be cut. And we know that this is not the meaning of the word expert. Expert surely just means someone who is very knowledgeable and skilled in their field. But I think to a lot of people who have been let down, lied to relentlessly by the media, by politicians. It is not too much of a jump 
to see people claiming to be experts, people being wrong. In fact, I think if Michael Gover just said a few more words and said, I think people are fed up of people who claim to be experts, actually maybe he'd be onto something. But of course, he didn't say that. This was a very deliberate choice of phrase, uh, almost dog whistle, you might say, in that, you know, the people who we did not hear him say what he really meant. We just heard him saying, what you're saying, people who are clever aren't relevant. This isn't what he's saying. He's giving a very clear message out to the sort of people uh, who, very much similar to Nigel Farage, remember that a few months ago he was smoking and someone said to him, why are you smoking? And he replied, he said, oh, I think the doctors have got it wrong on smoking. And like, yeah, you're right, smoke as much as you can, Nigel. I absolutely encourage you, smoke as many as you Yeah, no, you're right, no, they've got it wrong on smoking. Crack on, crack on. But again, he knows, he knows exactly what he's doing with these words. Let's be under no illusion that the word expert means many things. And actually, I think if we are going to have a, uh, a, a good, sensible, meaningful conversation about society's relationship with experts, we need to understand that the word expert has many meanings and um, people could misuse that. El, is it frustrating from your point of view as, as a young ac academic that's coming through um, probably into one of the most um, critical realms there's been in human history because we've got you know, abundance of fact-checking. You know, I can be an expert because I've got Google now. Is it frustrating from your point of view just how we do still belittle true academia? Um, I guess it's quite upsetting in the fact that I'm wanting to go into a field where I will be an expert. So I'm, I'm going into a field for people to be scared of me, I guess. <laughs> if they're going to have a fear of it, I'm, I'm going to be scared of. Um, but yeah, because you do end up having conversations with people where you can see exactly where they got the facts from. And you're just like, hmm, I know exactly what article that was from and I know exactly what article that was from. Um, and you're always having to challenge with, um, I guess, academic evidence. But because academic evidence is so, I guess, balanced, because we're always treading quite carefully, because we don't know all the answers. So we can never say a black and white answer with a drug's bad. You know, we can't give that so quick, a quick answer to anyone. We have to be very, what word do I want? Very, um, Nuanced. Nuanced, there we go, that's the word I want. We have to be quite nuanced, so it's quite, you know, I guess boring for people in an argument because we don't give what people want. Yeah, isn't that the problem? Isn't that the problem that people want simple answers and there aren't simple answers? And actually, I, I think we shouldn't be having a debate at the level of the sun I mean, how many of you read The Sun? None of you read The Sun, do you? None of you read The Mail, do you, either? Because you're intelligent people. people but the people that read The Sun and The Mail, they, they would never come here because, you know, they, this would confound them with, with words of three syllables and things, and we, we really don't want that. And that's the problem. I think people, I think, you know, it's not the problem with experts, it's the fact that people don't want to be made to think anymore. They want simple answers that are just thrust down their throats, and that's right. It's, in a way, that's, that, that's a kind of, it's a... I mean, I'm 66, and when I was, when I was at school, you know, there, there was a newspaper called the Daily Mirror, which actually used to be quite an interesting newspaper. I had columnists that wrote intelligent, articulate articles about the value of, uh, of kind of being, a, you know, labour policies and socialism and things, and it was an accepted you know, uh, organ of communication. That, and there was also, you know, newspapers like The Times, which were also independent and, and thoughtful. And those were the two newspapers that I read. I mean, now, none of them actually are worth reading at all. I mean, with possible exception of The Guardian, you've got no newspapers that actually engage in any kind of intellectual debate about anything. It's just pursuing the, the kind of polemic of their, of their, um, of their, you know, the, their, their shareholders and their um, the people that run them, and, and it, it, we've got, you know, we're we're in a peculiar position in this country. We're the only country in the world which allows our major mainstream media to be owned by individuals who don't even live in this country. They don't pay tax in this country. So the Telegraph is owned by two brothers who live in Sark, where they actually own the island, and they don't pay any tax in this country. The Barclay brothers. The males owned by the Northcliffs, who have lived in France for about 60 years because they got a tax exemption by living in France. And the Suns, of course, and the, and the Times are, are run by Murdoch, who lives in New York or where elsewhere. No other country in the world allows its majority of its media to be run by people that don't even pay tax in the country. 
And, and that gives them enormous power because they don't actually really care what happens. They like to pull strings. They like to mess up, mess with our pol politics and mess with our, our, our scientists because it, for them it's just a game and there's no consequences. And we should really stand up to that. We should try to change those policies so that, you know, the, at the very least we can have a dialogue with the people that make the news here. Well, indeed, most of Brexit was a game to the to people like Boris, who just treated it as just another jolly, another debating society, jamboree. Uh, and he didn't really, you know, who knows whether he is a Brexiteer or not. You will have your own opinion. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't think he was, but it sort of doesn't matter, does it? He is able to have flexible opinions depending on what will get him closer to power. Um, I think it's interesting what you're saying about how people don't want to think anymore. Because isn't it interesting that simultaneously everyone's an expert now? Yeah. I think that's very interesting that everyone's an expert, but <laughs> everyone's an expert immediately, even when uh, Theresa May went into uh, uh, conversations with the DUP. All English people knew about Northern Ireland all of a sudden. That was amazing. Even though they don't know the difference between the IRA and the Ulster resistance, they're still experts. They could talk to you all about it. Um, I think that's really fascinating. I was watching uh, a clip of um, Yanis Varoufakis, uh, the, 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 the Greek ex-finance minister. Um, I like to listen to his voice as I go to sleep. I like to think that I will become cleverer when I wake up. And he was on Question Time and this is a clip on YouTube you can see it's about a minute long and the audacity of this guy to just put his hand up and go well actually economics is really simple if I've got £10 and then I buy three drinks that's all my money gone and these economists just need to understand it's as simple as that and Yannis Varoufakis just had to stop him and go no that's completely wrong you've got that 100% wrong the audacity of this man to see Yanis Varoufakis in front of him and go, my opinion's just as valid as this, and put his hand up and say it on TV in front of everyone. I wouldn't have the nerve to do that. My goodness, but he did. I think that's really interesting. You know, we're, we're all experts now. That's, that is a lot of it. I mean, I'm, I like to think I'm humble to not being an expert. I, I mix with a lot of big intellects, you know, a lot of them up here, not necessarily. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, Chris, but me and you are very much over this side. But And it is, you, you do feel that sometimes you, you can't compete on an equal level just because of the backgrounds that people like you two have got. And there's, I quoted it when I was rambling at the start there, Professor Knight, that one of your papers, Estimating Drugs Harms a Risky Business through 2009, um, I'm always using this in drug policy presentations of how you set questions to the general public. One of them is, uh, do you believe in um, the relative harms of cannabis and how it relates to what you get prosecuted? So if you think that cannabis, just like our classification system, is supposed to be based on evidence of harm. So cannabis at the time was uh, B and then it was C and then you know, the, the classification argument, which eventually led to Professor Nutt's uh, dismissal from the ACMD. In the paper that I'm quoting, you specifically pointed out that the perception of harm in the general public is very different to how they would like to see cannabis prosecuted. So they believed in this 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 penumbra of harm of cannabis without it being set a higher bar in criminalisation stakes, if that makes remotest sense. And that to me is really interesting of how it's just belief systems again, isn't it, Professor Knight? But well, yeah, I mean, so, so like... You're going to explain it far better than I will, yeah. definitely. <laughs> so... What, when I started working for the ACMD in 2000, cannabis, amazingly, some forms of cannabis were a class A drug, uh, cannabis oils, and some forms of cannabis were a class B drug. Um, and no, the ACMD in the, in the 30 years that it existed had never dared to review cannabis. I was scared to do it because the government didn't want it. So the ACMD was, at, was supposedly an independent scientific group, but it effectively it was doing only what the government would allow it to do. And then there was a, a kind of ray of light came in. Two things happened. One was a, a woman called Ruth Runciman, who's a very uh, intelligent, very uh, able uh, sort of public servant who used to be on the ACMD, was funded um, to do a review of the drug laws. It was called the Runciman Report, and that published in 2000. And that was a remarkable piece of work, and that's where I really started getting interested in drugs and drug policy, because I was the kind of medical scientist on that committee. And that's where I started developing my scale of harms. And, and when that, that, we reported in 2000, and we said, we've got to change things. We've got to, we should really be thinking about having evidence-based 
regulation, and, and we probably should downgrade cannabis from A and B to at least B or maybe C. And then at that time, a lot of the newspapers, including the Mail, said, oh, that's far too conservative. You should go much further, much further, much further. Oh, you're being cowardly. And we thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, we thought we were being quite bold. And then David Blunkett came along as a, a, a Home Secretary and said, right, given this report, you should review the status of cannabis. So we reviewed the status of cannabis, and we concluded that it should all be put into Class C. Now, the government agreed. It's the only time in the history of any drug, literally in the history of any drug in this country, and that's going back nearly 50 years for the, to the Misuse of Drugs Act in 1971, the only time a drug's classification had been reduced. There's been loads and loads and loads of examples of where a drug has been given a higher classification or moved up a classification. The only time, literally, in the whole of the existence of this act, which is supposed to, sh to allow free movement at any point, the only time a drug was moved down. And anyway, we recommended going to see. Everyone was happy. And then a month before, the press went ape. They went absolutely insane. It was a month of hell. It was in January, and I remember it vividly, because they, there was enormous pressure to stop that happening. Vast amounts of press writings about it. Huge amounts of media discussion. And eventually, we, you know, the government held its line, and, um, and cannabis was reclassified. And from then on, there was a battle between the ACMD and the newspapers, the Mail and the Sun, to decide what classification would be. And every two years, the media pressurized the government to do another review of cannabis, and we did another review, and actually, every time we did a review, the harms got less. <laughs> so the chances of us recommending it being regraded got less. And Home Secretary got more and more angry. On the final review, uh, we thought, well, this is going to cause, you know, we're, it's very likely we're not going to change our, because, you know, the evidence was even more compelling. It was less harmful than we had been thought previously. So we thought, well, we'll preempt any criticism by the government because we would do a Murray poll to reassure them. Well, we'd find out. We didn't know what the Murray poll would say, but we did a Murray poll of what people thought. Okay, so then we. We did our report, and there was a lot of debate, but over, almost universal decision was to keep it Class C. So we wrote our report, presented it to the government, and you know, then half an hour later they, they said it was completely unacceptable and they were going to reclassify it anyway. So I went along to see the drugs minister, and, and he said, look, well, you've read the report, I don't know, understand why you're not going with it, why you want to reclassify from, up from C to B. And he said, well, it's the, because the public want it. So I said, oh, well, you probably haven't read the report then, because if you go to Appendix 2, you'll see the Murray, the Murray poll we did, where, where we actually asked the public, the same public that you ask about your decisions, we asked the same, look, look, turn to that page. And in that there, we had done this, this, this questionnaire, and we'd asked them, what classification should there be for cannabis? And I think 27, 24% said it should be increased, the classification should be increased from C either to A or B. 27% said it should be legal, i.e. downgraded, and the rest said it should stay the same. So I said, you don't need to worry, the public, the public don't care. The public actually would more and more of them want it legal. And, and he looked at me and he said, that's the wrong kind of public. <laughs> and there you have it, uh, absolutely, because it, it's, it's not, it wasn't the Daily Mail readers. It was the, that was a, you know, a, a proper representative selection of the, the average person, not the, not the, 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 the mail reader. Yeah. That, that is fascinating, isn't it, El? It's, it, the, it, again, reinforces that point of it's not just the information, it's the delivery of information. And that's where people like you are now managing to get the direct link between yes. the reader, the listener. And do you think with what you're doing with What's the Crack, the podcast, do you think that that can help in getting correct information out there? The fact we don't have to rely on potential institutions that may have some benefit or moral disposition to not wanting to reform drug laws? Yeah, definitely. Because I think with podcasts as well, it's such an open market. You don't have to, there's no prerequisite of anyone having to start up a podcast. So especially for me and my two colleagues, when we set it up, we were, none of us had a PhD, which is sometimes in the academic world, it's, it's 
not looked high upon because you're not a doctor, so you don't get the right... Yeah, so we, we had to find another way. Oh, you were, actually. I didn't realise that. No, no, yeah, no, come, come across very well, anyway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're looking down on me now. <sighs> but no, we had to find another way, which was podcasts, because it's new, it's up and coming, there's lots of other things. We were looking in the market for who already had podcasts that was about drugs, which was Leap, which was Say Why to Drugs with Susie Gage and Scooby Spip. And I think there was another few in America at the time, the States. Uh, so we were like, brilliant, this is a open market that we can go for um, so it's, it's a bit more freeing because we obviously had to get the background we had to research the evidence we had to do as we would as an, uh, in academia uh, look through it all to create these podcasts but we just brought in other experts to help us with every episode so if we were doing one on drug consumption uh, drug consumption rooms we would ask around our department because it was really lucky that we were in King's um, in the addictions department where we could just walk around and say right who's an expert on this who knows this better and we just drag them in and do them as a podcast not drag they were very happy to help um yeah so it was you just made that link that i guess filling that gap in podcasts for uh, listeners that we wouldn't have even been able to reach before because our voices are a bit quieter being a non-doctor um yeah so it's it's reaching a different audience with a podcast do you think that is more relatable though the fact that you can speak the layman's language and I'm using quotation marks for that because again I consider myself the layman I totally speak for Chris again I'm totally putting you down throughout this Chris I apologise <laughs> but you know you, you speak in languages that we can understand and a lot of times I have to read papers um, you know being scientific papers not the tabloids um, thankfully and it is a lot of times it's a different language and do you consciously interpret that in a different way so that we can understand it yeah we, we, we check ourselves quite a lot because as I'm when I'm the host and my two colleagues, Lindsay and Rob, um, if they're talking about a topic that they're obviously so submerged in because they know that topic so well, acronyms will come out of their ears. And I'm just like, no, what's that? They'll just say, oh, and a, a paper from the WHO. I was like, what's the WHO? Okay, the World Health Organization. I'm like, just you're stopping each time to just go, no, I don't know what that is. And there's things that I don't even know because we're in different uh, specializations. So it is, it's just stopping each other and say, would I know that? Would I, you know, it's, it's just ourselves because if I don't know what they're talking about, then no one else who will listen in will. Well, yeah. To an extent. And that's, that's why I like what you're around, Chris, in, in satirical politics and, and generally, like, have, have I got news for you, what you do in lolitics. You manage to strip this, a lot of times, the contentious issues, the third rail issues, as we call them, and you manage to put a spin on them so that we can... Humour is a massive tool, I think, don't you? Oh, that's very kind of you to say so. Um, I suppose you have to, because the joke just doesn't work if people don't know what you're talking about. So you have to explain it as you go. Um, so I, I, I suppose that comedy can be a very powerful and useful tool in that respect because you can't just go on and talk in grand scientific terms because you won't get the laughs you will do it in your first draft and then go oh right and you'll <laughs> you'll redraft it um uh, I, 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 there is also it's quite useful that when people are laughing with you and they like you you can then give them propaganda and you can brainwash them so for example as i say in my, in my 2015 stand-up show which was called left-wing propaganda machine guess what my politics are um there i i, I talked a great deal about uh how i used to drink and i used to think that all drugs are bad and now i don't drink alcohol at all but i do um other drugs like mdma nitrous oxide and things like that um unless there's any police here in which case i definitely do not do any of those things if there's any police here <laughs> um but uh, uh and it's quite a big thing i mean i'm sure that you found this david like when you tell people for the first time actually alcohol is more dangerous than other drugs people just laugh at you because i mean if you talked about it in your book that people don't see alcohol as a drug because it's alcohol because it's legal so it's different um so initially when you say that to people they don't believe you but if you've got 20 minutes of their time and you can tell them a story about how i used to think all drugs are bad but then i did a little bit of reading i met some people who did mdma and knew where to get it from a safe reliable person i did it in a nice controlled environment i was able to read up on the science i discovered that it is true i read david nutt's book and found out even more um when you're able to take people on that journey and you've got sort of 20 minutes to tell people and that comes 40 minutes into a stand-up show where they've already decided they like you then you can do good things 
you, you make a really good point because alcohol is quite often a contentious subject. Um, we, as we are recording this, yesterday was the debate in Parliament of our drug strategy, which was released at the end of last week. And it's still pretty much the same themes as what P- Professor Nutt was uh, dismissed under in, in the ACMD. And ironically, within the drug strategy, the ACMD are thanked. And yet we know from current MCA, a, a, ACMD members, and again, I'm using acronyms, which is the, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, the, the eminent body that's supposed to then advise the government on drugs, um, which Professor Nutt was the chair of, They've not been consulting on the drug strategy, really, and the points that they do recommend, like safe injection facilities, um, naloxone distribution, none of these were recommendations. And yet in the debate that we had in Parliament yesterday, alcohol was another big contentious issue that came up being that the, the person that was there representing the Home Office, uh, was it Sarah Newton, was it? She was again focused on, well, no, let's not talk about alcohol. People can use that safely. It's not harmful. It's, we've got a different position on it. I think, I th- Professor Nutt, you put the microphone to your lips. I'm totally handing over to you on this subject because it's so frustrating. Again, as a non-drinker, it is so awkward to sit there, watch a debate like that on the social and physical harms of drugs and not talk about alcohol. Yeah, and, and the, it's, the reasons are, are kind of long-standing and complex, but I suppose in a nutshell, what you can say is that the drinks industry has been possibly the greatest lobbying influence in the history, or certainly of, of sort of our our parliament. They, the drinks industry has over about over about 150 years. The drinks industry has eliminated all competition. If you go back to the 1860s, uh, you could uh, go to your corner shop or your local pharmacy and. You could buy your booze and you could buy your tobacco and you could buy your tincture of opium and tincture of cocaine and tincture of cannabis. You could, you, you know, you basically, it was all legal and you used it as you liked. Uh, and the drinks industry plus the pharmaceutical industry together eliminated oh, the pharmaceutical uh, aspects of those drugs and then, then started to systematically uh, eliminate the, the recreational use of drugs. And well, you can see how successful it's been. We now have a, 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 a... We live in the only country in the world which actually specifies the only drug you can take that changes the way your mind works is alcohol. The Psychoactive Substances Act last year said no other drug, whether it exists today or will exist in the future, could be legal if it changes the way your mind works. Even if it worked exactly the same as alcohol, it would be illegal, even if it was completely safe. So, so this is a... We've actually succumbed completely to the, to the drinks industry's lobbying. And the way they work is this, that they, they used to directly fund... In 1995, we did a survey of, par, of parliamentarians and uh, we discovered uh, like 74% of them actually took money from the drinks industry. But then when that, we made that public, they got a bit wise to that. So then the drinks industry moved back and they created an interface with Parliament called the hospitality industry. Uh, and the hospitality industry represents the, the values of Britain and encourages tourism, etc. And they basically give vast amounts of money uh, from the drinks industry into Parliament. And another interesting aspect of it is that when you become an MP, you're allowed to join clubs. They have a lot of they have a very interesting clubs. You know, you can join the Overseas Cricket Club. You know, uh, the Himalayan Walk. You know, there's all sorts of clubs you can join. The Caribbean Reggae Band Club or whatever. But anyway, the most popular club in Parliament is the Beer Club. Uh, and what do you get if you join the Beer Club? So if you join the Beer Club, you get two cases of good quality beer at Christmas. Now, about I think it's about two thirds of MPs are in the Beer Club. And that means they get about 100 quid of free beer at Christmas, but that's enough to shut them up because they're corrupt. By taking the free beer, they've, they've actually sold their souls, and they won't argue, they won't debate against the drinks industry. But it goes beyond that, and this is, this is truly the most chilling discovery I made recently because one, one of my research fellows is friendly with a, uh, a person who works in Parliament as an advisor to a, a parliamentarian. And he was invited into the, the, the House of Westminster uh, just on November, the end of November last year, to look around and to go to a party. 
And uh, this party was, uh, uh, how many, have you, many of you been in the Houses of Wales? I mean, Parliament too. There's this wonderful balcony that looks out over the Thames. You know, you say it's, if you look from the other side of the Thames, it's a, it's a long balcony, runs along the, the side of the house. And, you know, it's a beautiful place to have meetings and parties. And they, can, they put uh, marquees up there to keep the rain out when it's, uh, in, the, in the winter. And he went to this party, and this party, he said, what is this? He said, this is the Diageo party. So this was an explicit um, funded event by Diageo. And, and he said, I was, it was surreal, because there were loads of drunk MPs drinking this free booze. Uh, and, uh, and there were a number of editors of national newspapers, the ones we've touched on already, drinking with these politicians. They were all drunk, all free, on free Diageo booze. And he said, I couldn't believe it. I was sort of sitting there watching this, this orgy of drinking. And then uh, a shadow minister came in with his five acolytes. And he said, they sat down uh, at five o'clock. They drank five, all drank five pints of beer each. And at six o'clock, he went off to vote. And he, I, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe this. So I said to my friend, who he said, "Well, this is surely this, you know, this, is this the Christmas party?" And he said, "Oh no, no, every two weeks, every two weeks, Diageo has a free party in Parliament. Must pay thousands of pounds to get access to that particular terrace, and they just give free booze to anyone who wants it. And that's why you can't have a debate about alcohol. What's why? Because they're all." complicit, they're all drinking from that trough. And that's another thing I learned. So I'm trying to get this published. Actually, I cannot find a journal that will publish this. Because they, they refuse... Hmm? They refuse... Hmm? Yeah. Well, you should... Yeah, do you get, but Diageo do have their free... Maybe you're not allowed in because... Well, you're too far from... Yeah. Any, but the other thing is, and so the, 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 the tobacco industry is not allowed to give free cigarettes to MPs anymore. But it is allowed to give free cigarettes to their assistants. So this guy gets 200 free cigarettes from BAT a month, just in case he might want to smoke. <laughs> but it's, of course, it's so that when he's writing, you know, the, the, the speeches for his minister or his shadow minister... He doesn't bother. He doesn't want to bother him with things like tobacco. You know, I mean, the system is corrupt, and it's uniquely corrupt. I don't think any other government in the world is as corrupt as that in terms of their attitude to the drugs and drinks industry. Yeah, I, I think uh, it, 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 it's shocking. And you know, the, the, the most popular club is the beer club. You all know about this. The second most popular club is the oil club. And um, every two weeks, MPs get sent two barrels of oil. <laughs> They just do what they want with it. And, of course, we're not going to be able to solve climate change when this is happening. They love oil. They swim in it. They drink. I don't know what they do with it. It's not my business. But hopefully that will change. Is there a chocolate club, Ronnie? Because I, I want a chocolate club. I, actually, I think we should lobby Waterstones. I think we need a chocolate club here every month. Hey? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. But it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? El, El, sorry, I'll keep calling you Ellie. I apologise because I know so many Ellies. But L, it is fascinating, isn't it, that... Because I've seen behind the curtain of Parliament, you know, myself and Neil can be seen there quite quite often. Um, have you had much experience with regards, regards to that disconnect between policymakers and what they think the perception of harms are, or the general public even? Do you think it matches up to the actual evidence that's out there on certain things? Well, I've never been in Parliament, but um, yeah, because we do. Dr- uh, my focus with my specialty work with is drug policy and. What my PhD is going to be in is cannabis legalization because Canada next year will be legalizing um, cannabis. And I think that's one of the most, I guess that's the gap between the public and um, the evidence base because I think most of what's offered is legalization or prohibition. Meaning, so you've got to say, no, 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 there's actually way more options available. You haven't just got um, prohibition, such as cannabis as it is now, versus alcohol. You have every other thing. You've got so many other things under the sun. You've got decriminalization. You've got regulation. You've got uh, the model that the Netherlands have at the moment. So it's, I guess there's that disconnect there of having to, yeah, yeah re re-say that over and over again because I think me and again my colleague who I do um, What's the Crack with we did a a competition that we had to create a policy and um, pitch it within three minutes and we pitched a a regulative market for the UK and it was focused on explaining that there was more than just the two ends of the spectrum so yeah there's there's a yeah there is is polarisation again it's, it's always playing a part isn't it one of the things you also wouldn't know, because I only discovered this recently, is that this is the first... We, we don't have any experts in Parliament anymore. This is the first Parliament in 80 years when a single MP has a PhD. And, and I think that also is, to some extent, reflecting a change in the nature of politics in this country, where, where actually it's more about how you spin what you say than actually the content of what you say and and I find that very worrying Uh, a previous podcast guest here was Dr Julian Hooper Um, he was Liberal Democrat for last PhD in Parliament exactly and as you said Professor Knight it it seems like it's missing There, there is just not enough in the way of diversity in politics anymore and I think Chris you might be a good one to speak on this given that you know your podcast uh, Lolitics is there to ridicule what's going on in politics essentially do you think we have lost our way within it the whole system well, um, as well as Lolitics, um, which uh, is uh, a podcast and a comedy club that I run. I'll give you a fly for it later. I'd love you to come. Um, I also do a YouTube show called The News for Idiots, which I bill as like The Daily Show or Last Week Tonight, but less good because it's just me making it. But um, I sort of take clips from the news and talk about what's going on. So I watch a lot of Sky News. I watch more Sky News, I think, than the people who make Sky News. <laughs> it's horrible. It's really hard. I've made some terrible life choices. But... Um, what I think is interesting about program about shows like uh, sorry about channels like Sky News, certainly CNN, is that there's so much news happening in the world, but you won't see most of it on these channels. Not in a grand conspiracy way, just because it's quite expensive to do a lot of journalism in that way that when you turn on Sky News and there's only three stories, you think, oh, it's a slow news day. And then you turn on, like, Al Jazeera, and you go, oh, there's all these other countries as well that I forgot about. Um, and, and so to fill the time, it's very cheap just to get two people on to shout at each other. Uh, normally, Sky News only have two, sometimes three. You turn to CNN and they'll regularly have seven people all shouting over each other. And I wish I could remember who said this. This is not my... Um, joke or comment but imagine that it's a bit like getting a load of people on and having one of them say two plus two is five the other going two plus two is seven and then going well is the truth somewhere in the middle no not necessarily um but this is how uh the, the punditry works and neither of these people are necessarily qualified to talk about what they're talking about it's never mentioned what their motivation is for for being on their screen. Then you look at people like, uh, for example, Dan Hodges, who um, is always wrong when he makes predictions, and that's fine. Most of us were wrong about Trump, Brexit, how the, um, the, 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 the election would go. But the people who claim to be absolute experts 
in this stuff turn out to have it no more right or wrong than by chance than if they were just picking opinions out of a hat. Is it any wonder that people do not trust experts when we have people like this on our screen saying stuff that then turns out to be wrong? You know, I don't think this is a coincidence. How do we do we go about that? Because I mean, again, I'm I'm a fan of yours, Professor Nutt. But at the same time, do you think there are people out there that are going to be critical of you because you've got a very outspoken position on drug policy? Do you think they're going to be less likely just because you're being honest? Or do you think that we can still have experts um, and it be, you know, non-biased? Well, I think I think there's a difference between an expert and a commentator. I think what you're talking about are people who are commentating and who... Um, who I agree, but they wouldn't. That's the the problem. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, one of the interesting... I mean, there isn't much debate with me. I mean, the people that debate with me are people that are insane, like, you know... (laughs) uh, Because, you know, know, I think most scientists... Same with you. Most most people who've thought about the topic and who've who've read around the topic and who've spent, you know, 40 years, or there are many people spent 40 years researching, and I... You know, they... They know that what we're saying is right. So, so you, there are very few academics that will that actually don't agree with us. But, but, they don't, you know, but, but it's not interesting to have two people agreeing. So then they go and find someone who's crazy, like Peter Hitchens, who will shout at me because he's because he got something be in his bonnet about cannabis. And, uh, and that isn't, you know, that doesn't, because he's being interviewed at the same time as me doesn't make him an expert but but you know there's a sense in which people think he must have some special qualities because otherwise he wouldn't be in the same room with me would he and and that is what we find isn't it is that the the quest just to have the debate often overrides the need for evidence and and yeah, well, that's where you come in again is to try and cut through that uh, do you find that within your scientific circle that most people do take we use the word nuanced position on drugs. Do you think that most people within if academic mindset are more likely to look at this from a blank slate? Do you, do you mean my colleagues who I work with? Just general yeah. your circle, because again, I'm not from the scientific field whatsoever. Mm. So within that, I'd imagine you all get together and you have picnics. Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, it's slightly like a bubble. Yeah, because pick mushrooms, <laughs> don't they? That is what we do. Um, it's slightly like a bubble, because we're all kind of fighting the same fight to do public health and to help the users and to make it a safer place for users and the community. So I feel that it's almost like, you, I guess, an echo chamber of like, I'm, I always feel confident in what I'm going to say or opinions that I'm going to say within the workplace because I always, I just assume that people think the same. Um, I might be wrong and people might be quiet, but um, yeah, it seems to be the case that people are going for the same end goal of public health. So presumably there is no moralistic approach. You are very much focused on the science and evidence of it. Yeah, yeah, whatever the science uh, yeah, spits out at the end of all the the studies and the journals that come out is generally, yeah, with a, yeah, not, yeah, no moral. Which is in contrast to the realm that you do in, Chris, is that presumably most times within the comedy realm, most people got an overall position and you're either taking the mickey out of it and people laughing or people dislike you. It's that second one, more often than not, I find. <laughs> um, yes, although, again, um, if your audience disagrees with you, they might not laugh. So you have to convince them. Um, I suppose I have nothing more to add to it than, than, than that, that, I think. Um, yeah. so, so, uh, I do have an example, actually. Uh, e-cigarettes, because that's the same end goal of going for public health, but uh, on one side of the argument, it's you should use e-cigarettes because they're you know, um, less harmful than cigarettes and that the end goal is the public health. But then on the other side, it's why are you giving money the t- to the tobacco industry and you're normalising smoking, therefore more people will smoke. So you've got two sides of academics that are still going for the same argument but not necessarily with the same opinion. So that, that's, that's my interject. Yeah, actually, but, but the, the e-cigarette debate is a, is a peculiarly uh, polarising one and... It's actually the UK is lead, it, there's a very few things we lead the world in, but we do lead the world in e-cigarettes and the use of e-cigarettes to reduce harms, uh, because Public Health England has 
essentially concluded that the 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 health benefits massively massively outweigh any potential long-term harms and i'm sure they're right but other countries have taken a very different view and they've ignored the evidence and they and and they have basically they have policies which are driven by uh, people's hatred of smoking so in the usa we have this amazing situation now where if you vape anything even water is a tobacco product. So currently now in the States, every, anything that's vaped is now deemed a tobacco product. Even as I say, if it's propylene like if it's water, even if it's got no nicotine. Because that, they have chosen to define all vaping as tobacco. Which is absurd and it reflects a kind of a, a, a peculiarly puritanical hatred of smoking. And, and in the end, of course, the consequence is going to be that, that millions, millions of Americans will continue to smoke cigarettes and die. But that's, that's, that, is, that is a position that has been driven by people who are supposedly scientists, but they don't believe in harm reduction. They just, their view is we've got to stop any smoking. And, and, they, and in America, they can no longer stop tobacco smoking. So when the tobacco companies were sued and uh, forced to pay huge um, penalties to the states. You remember about 10 years ago, the, 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 a deal was done that wasn't made very public, that as part of the deal of paying you know, billions and billions of dollars to each state for tobacco-related damage, that they could never, ever be sued again. So the tobacco industry now has is virtually uncontro uncontrolled in America. The state the government can't interfere with the tobacco industry selling cigarettes. So what the public health people, they can't do anything about cigarettes anymore. But they've got to keep employed. They've got to keep working. They're all academics in universities. So they're now attacking the vaping industry because that's the only thing they're allowed to attack. So this is a, this, I mean, it's a complicated argument and it's a perverse mixture of, you know, this is a perverse incentive. Academics need to be employed. They've got families. So if, if they can't attack cigarettes, they attack something that looks like it. And, and so we have this hysterical antipathy to e-cigarettes in the States, which will be in the end very, very detrimental. And it, it's fueled by the bigger concept in America, this, this ultra-Puritan idea of that harm reduction is something that's not acceptable. I mean, it's not... Well, you, you may again, you may not know this, but American scientists are not cannot get funding to do harm reduction initiatives. For, they're not allowed to use the term harm reduction. That's why the UN don't allow the term harm reduction in any of their writings on drugs. That is not an acceptable term for in, in, to get money out of the U.S. government. You cannot talk about harm reduction. You've got to talk about stopping people using drugs. And although some groups have managed to bypass that and, and for particular reasons like reducing AIDS. There is no generally accepted belief that harm reduction is, is a right way forward. Whereas in the UK, we've always accepted that. We've pioneered harm reduction. So, you know, you've got, so that's, it's, it's not just about the science. It's about the science in the context of this, uh, this, this huge political pressure, which again, as I say, is often driven by puritanical beliefs rather than by evidence. I really got to get into, and I bet your board is speaking about it, Professor Nutt, but what happened in the ACMD and the whole dismissal at the time, which was, what was it, 2009, 10, was it? Um, we haven't really progressed since then, have we? It's still the, the, the root causes that saw your position end still exist today, which is general ignorance around drugs. Yeah, I think things have got worse, actually. I mean, so that makes me wonder whether I, it was foolhardy of me to get sacked, but I didn't, I didn't actually set it up. <laughs> I just told the truth. And uh, very, it just shows, actually, my sacking shows the power of the BBC. You know, so you just, I'll just warn you about this. Go on the Today program, 8 o'clock in the morning. No, it's 5 to, five to 8. And if you go on there and say LSD is less harmful than alcohol, you will get sacked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's kind of weird because I, I, I said, the guy said, well, you can't be serious. I said, of course I'm serious. I mean, you know, alcohol kills 20,000 people a year as it did then. LSD doesn't kill anyone. So, you know, why are we so hysterical about LSD and why are we not focusing on alcohol? And that one sentence... 
and actually there's another, another tip I'm going to give you, right? If you're doing media, don't do it in a studio because then they can get you on all the other programs. So by 10 o'clock, I'd done multiple programs, the World Service, BBC News, you know, TV News, at which point it had become a storm as opposed to just a statement. And then it kind of went completely hysterical over the next uh, 24 hours. Largely, though, I mean, I think perhaps some people don't know the background to this. So, you know, ever since I was made chair of the ACMD, there was a... Ah, see, they've switched it off. <laughs> Censorship. They're still... There, 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 there's a, there was, there's a group of, there are a group of these ultra-conservative, right-wing Puritans, anti-drug campaigners who set out to get me sacked, and, and they were very, you know, they, they, they monitor me. They, they know my publications before I do. Seriously, because they monitor every day what I publish. They carry around files of everything I say, so they're almost certainly going to get this recording. And they set out to get me sacked because they saw me as a threat to their belief, which is that we've got to have to keep the war on drugs because eventually we will win it. People will stop using drugs, not alcohol, but other drugs. I mean, it was, a, it was an... Abs- and, and their ambition was to get me sacked, and they f- fermented quite a lot of the hysteria around it. And... Uh, and since then, I think, you know, the, the people who've taken over from me, they've been put in a very difficult position because uh, the government ha- actually, it, they know now there's nothing they can do. Whatever they say, the government's going to take no notice. So, and they haven't. They've largely just been ignored. And I don't kind of know why they're still there. I think they might have better if they resigned if we didn't have an ACMD now, but, but we still have. And it, it was. It was this political funnel again, wasn't it, that between the link between the media and the politicians and public perception that essentially pushed you out for telling the truth. And we probably haven't progressed since then, have we? Because the debate yesterday in Parliament yeah. kind of shows that we're still in that mindset. No, and that, the big problem with drugs is that they are a very powerful political tool. And that's why politicians are prepared to take outrageous positions because it, they still believe you can get votes. And, you know, and it, that happens in local politics. If, if someone wants to set up a, a safe injecting room somewhere, it's almost de rigueur that the local politician will come out against it because he thinks that will help him be seen as being strong on drugs and therefore helping them. You know, at all levels, there's, this, there's, a, there's an ignorance and a fear and antipathy to any kind of rational approach to drugs. And that's why we do need experts. And that's, again, I just say, Public Health England have been really good here. They've probably made a lot of political enemies, but they have stood up for the truth in many of these areas. You, you used this as part of your routine, didn't you, Chris? You followed the Professor Nut debacle, as we call it in quotation marks, and, and it was something that stimulated... Well, obviously, it must have loads of material within what happened there. <laughs> well, um, it, it was quite satisfying uh, to be able to talk about my own personal experience of going from drinking and thinking drugs are bad to thinking very much the opposite, bringing David Nutt's story, and... Uh, being able to talk to people after my shows to hear people say that they didn't realise. They didn't realise that alcohol was as dangerous. They maybe even never thought of it as a drug in the first place. I certainly didn't when I was younger. I'm sure many of us here can relate to that. And it's certainly very satisfying to um, be able to do my own very, very small bit in getting the message out there. Um, because, uh, you know, we, we all have opinions on the echo chamber and everything like that. But, uh, but it, it, it's not, you know, these are stories that will very, very rarely make it into, as you say, the sun, the, <laughs> the, the Daily Mail. And it's nice to, yeah, just make that human connection with people and, and sort of get my layman's version of the knowledge out there. I think the interesting aspect of it was that the public debate became so intense that it kind of completely undermined the purpose of the sacking. Yeah. Because up till that point, there wasn't really a public discussion about drugs. Most scientists were scared to say what they really believed because they thought that you know there might be a black mark against them. But having been sacked and having then been th- sort of thrust in, no one knew me before I was sacked, and being thrust straight into the, and, and being on you know, TV and you know, on a regular basis, I was then able to put the debate into the public domain. And that's why and, and there's way much more discussion about it now than there ever was. And, and, and so the government actually really did, it was a lose-lose for the government. Yeah. 
like the Streisand effect, isn't it? You know, do, do you know about the Streisand effect where um, Barbara Streisand, um, I think I'm quoting this right, there was a photo taken of her house on the coast and I think it was, it was put online. She wanted it taken down and in doing so, she generated so much publicity about the photo that everyone saw this photo. So the Streisand effect is now a word for when you try and silence a thing and then you do uh, far more damage than you intended to by actually bringing it to a lot of people. I think this is very much a, a case of Effect. I probably wouldn't have found out about any of this if it wasn't for your sacking. I probably would have still done drugs because I work in show business. But whether I would have um, known about the actual science behind them, the, the, the risks, I, I very much doubt it. And you must have been fairly young during that whole spell, L. Um, did you have it? Did you follow it at all? Was it any kind of influence? Yeah, well, I was just about to say that um, when it happened, I was at Bristol Uni doing chemistry, and it's when it when I first found out that drugs had a different story than they're just bad. So it was, it was, it actually helped. It brought, it brought someone else into drugs, uh, research and in drug policy. Cause I wouldn't have been here if not, <laughs> but yeah, so it was like, uh, the only thing that was in my head was what we'd been told at school, which was a policeman coming in with a briefcase and showing all these and going, no, don't take these. <laughs> these are wrong. Um, and then that's all I had, all the, all my memory. And then, uh, then at Bristol, I think we had like a, uh, a topic that was just on creating cocaine and heroin. And I was like, whoa, I could do this. I know chemistry. And then, yeah, absolutely blew open. And here I am. That's, that's pretty much the same for me I, and the same for you, Chris, is that I had no knowledge of drugs. And then it was during the Professor Nutt spell that I realised, actually, there might be something more to this. And, and the overlapping factors to drug policy isn't just about the drugs themselves. It's about the societal position. It's about harms, what goes with it, and the political harms that we've just been talking about. And, and do you find that within the audience that you specifically get, Chris, at your uh, lot of ticks and at the comedy club, are they informed on, not necessarily drugs, but are they of an informed position enough that they can have a discussion on this? Yes. Um, my uh, audiences that I'm very grateful to have are terrible to test new material on because they're smart and they know about them very much like yourselves. Um, we, we might tell a joke here and it will get a laugh. And I think, oh, that's good. Then you do it in a comedy club and no, no, then, then it doesn't work. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm very much aware of the, the bubble that I live in. But it's, it's nice in the bubble, isn't it? I don't want to leave the bubble. It's horrible out there. It's, it's garbage in the real world. I'd much rather live in my, my cozy little, um, little bubble that I've somehow created. Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing is, as well, that I've seen Professor Nutt in circumstances where, again, he can hold an audience like a comedian because you've now got that rapport with the audience through the, the media um, bubble and perception that you've now got. And you're such a hard-working person in these circumstances because you're always doing these kind of nights. You, I don't suppose you ever have a night at home now, do you? When you get to my age, you know, you've got to take every offer you're given. <laughs> No, but seriously, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an honour to have so many people here. I mean, it's, you know, if people want to hear me, I want to speak because uh, it's, it's, there's still a lot of people to speak to and there's still a lot of people that don't really understand what's going on. And I think that's where I can build, build, uh, bring Neil in, uh, my chairman of Leap UK, because that's what we do, isn't it? We need to get other people involved in this discussion so that we can actually do something about it. Because reform is really simple at the end of the day. It's really not worth the discussion that we're having to put into this. It's quite a, it's quite a simple area, isn't it? So how do we go about making this a, a public issue, Neil? Well, I mean, we, we are between us creating the social movement, aren't we? And if, you, if you're listening to this, uh, either in the audience here or, or if you're listening to it on the podcast, and if you are convinced, then, you know, we've, you, you've been provided with information by the, obviously, David Nutt and um, other guests that we have on the podcast. And if you are convinced, then you are also part of the social movement. And that means I'm talking to you that's listening. If you're part of the social movement, it's your responsibility as much as ours to, to, to spread that and tell everybody else. So that's how we do it. So that was part one. And if you can come back for part two, like I said, we're going to do audience questions in that one. And invariably, the audience always shake things up a bit. So it's going to be pretty interesting in that one, I think you're fine. Um, and while I'm talking about the audience, I need to thank you. Thank you for the support you give us. Um, we, we do well on the numbers. Um, but also, we recently got featured in The Guardian, a recommendation. And, and they basically said what we always say, that we're not just a podcast. We're a, we're a bit of a tool for social change. Um, and it works. So if you can get involved, spread this conversation around. 
uh, also suggest as guests and use social media to suggest guests. So if you know somebody that's got a position on drug policy or just you think would be an interesting conversation, um, shove this podcast under the nose and go, look, go and have a chat with them, will you? It'll, it'll really help. So, yeah, please do. Um, and while I've got your attention, of course, I need to do my, my thank yous. Thank you so much, John Harris from the Dream Factory podcast. He does all our social media on, on the Church and Peace Network. Thank you so much for that. Thank you to Tristan and Nikki, our producers. Thank you for all you do on this. Thank you to John, our social media guy at um, UK Leap. And my name is Ad. Thank you for all the artwork that you give us. So on that note, I'm going to leave it before I start rambling too much. Please come back for part two of Fear of Experts. I'll see you then. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true valleys seldom stray Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.